Uh, Susan Sontag is an original among writers. Uh, she's probably given credit for the coining of that word camp that became so much part of her vocabulary and still is to some extent. But she's an observer of the human comedy, pretty much. And uh, her observations, too, of, of art is remarkable. Her book on photography has been acclaimed, as well as her most recent work, Illness as Metaphor, uh, Farrar strauss Giro, the publishers. Illness as Metaphor, with all the implications, uh, the emphasis particularly on the two, the two mysterious romantic and anti-romantic ones, the most uh, TB and cancer. In a moment, her thoughts about the book and reflections, illness as metaphor, after this message. thought to be relatively painless. Cancer is thought to be invariably excruciatingly painful. TB is thought to provide an easy death while cancer is the spectacularly wretched one. For over a hundred years tuberculosis remained the preferred way of giving death a meaning, an edifying, refined disease. 19th century literature is stocked with descriptions of almost symptomless, unfrightened, beatific deaths from tuberculosis, particularly of young people such as little Eva in Uncle Tom's Cabin and Dombey's son Paul in Dombey and Son and Smike in Nicholas Nickleby, where Dickens describes tuberculosis as, quote, the dread disease which refines death of its grosser aspect 
in which the struggle between soul and body is so gradual, quiet, and solemn, and the result so sure that day by day and grain by grain the mortal part wastes and withers away so that the spirit grows light and sanguine with its lightning load. Nearly a century later, in his edition of Catherine Mansfield's posthumously published journal, John Middleton Murray uses similar language to describe Mansfield on the last day of her life. Quote, I have never seen, nor shall I ever see, anyone so beautiful as she was on that day. It was as though the exquisite perfection which was always hers had taken possession of her completely. To use her own words, the last grain of sediment, the last traces of earthly degradation, were departed forever. But she had lost her life to save it. Susan Sontag reading a passage from Illness's Metaphor, preceded by La Gallion and the last scene of Camille, or then Muccio Violetta Camille, dying romantically. The romance for a long time was not so the romantic aspect of TB. It was accepted, wasn't it? Yeah, it seems to to start uh, as early as uh, the earliest text that I found was in the 1760s, that is to say, middle of the 18th century, when to have TB is the sign of a romantic or sensitive uh, character. Uh, that is to say, uh, it was only people like that, uh, it was some kind of promotion almost, to be ill in that way. We know, a fact that, as a matter of fact, that um, this disease killed millions and millions of people every year. It was probably the number one killer in Europe in the 19th century. And yet, despite all the evidence uh, of people's own experience, they did romanticize it. We're talking about, of course, the contrast of that killer and the current one, cancer, the contrast, that TB. But wasn't there a time when TB was considered shameful, too? Also, yeah. yeah. I think what you get with yeah. these um, diseases that become uh, mythic, that become cultural metaphors, is you get two absolutely contradictory interpretations yeah. that coexist side by yeah. side, and people are not aware of the contradiction even. So on the one hand, it was romantic. On the other hand, it was also shameful yeah. and also taboo. People did not mention TB in the same way that people are reluctant to pronounce the word cancer. Yeah. It, they did not say tuberculosis, they had a whole series of euphemisms, the most famous of which is consumption, but uh, they also spoke of weakness of the lungs, for instance, or ver various things like mm. that, and they, or, or a long illness. Yeah, by the way, today, uh, the when someone does die of TB, you don't say a lot, when the long illness invariably means cancer, mm -hmm. doesn't it? As That's though people right. are afraid to use that. Now, why this fear? Now we come to it, don't we? Well, I think there are all, there's all sorts of magical thinking about disease and uh, some feeling that the disease is morally, if not uh, literally, contagious. And, and so it is treated as, uh, as, as something contagious, so that if you say the name of the disease, you are coming closer to it. It's as if you risk getting it if you even pronounce the word. It's very hard to even imagine, if you don't think that way about illness, to imagine how people could, and yet many people, I find that, that uh, most people are very reluctant to say the word cancer. Um, that, that they almost literally, yeah. visibly choke on it, yeah. that they now, try to find yeah. some other way of saying it. Yeah. And the doctor lies to the patient. He wouldn't, if the guy is a cardiac, I'd say, well, look, you, you, got, you got a bad pump, yeah. or you got angina. Yeah. But he would, there, there's no, now why, there's nothing, there's nothing more romantic about the ticker. No. Or is it the heart? Maybe it is the heart. 
Well, I don't, I don't think that heart disease, it's interesting because you yeah. could imagine that it could be romanticized uh, because of all our associations with the idea of the heart, but in fact it hasn't been. In fact, heart disease is treated in a very uh, mechanistic way. Mm -hmm. As you say, something, I think that you just said something about the pump mm -hmm. or the ticker. Mm -hmm. uh, we think of the heart, perhaps incorrectly even, as a machine. Uh, and it, we are ca Muscle. Car yeah, we're carrying these machines around, mm -hmm. and the machine can break down. But um, there's nothing obscene or shameful. No, because literally, or so now with pacemakers, sure, it's literally a machine. Literally, literally, yeah. it seems as if as if the disease generates the treatment that goes with the metaphor. So that the only treatment, well, mm -hmm. well there is of course this radical uh, heart surgery, but uh, the fact is we, that, that the best that people can figure out is some kind of mechanistic yeah. treatment. It isn't yeah. a treatment, let's say, with drugs or, yeah. or something like that. It is a treatment which involves fixing yeah. or retooling the machine. Yeah. But in your work, in this book, that's f so full of insights, too, and all sorts of implications will come to as we go along. Fear, superstition, suspicion, war, uh, analogies, the euphemisms war uses, too. For TB cancer, now TB, you say in TB there was an ambiguity at all times. Was there not? Sure, there was always a double interpretation. For instance, on the one hand, you have a, the recurrent figure of the tubercular courtesan or prostitute, as in Camille, Camille Marietta, yeah. and so on. And, and Fantine, uh, and little streetwalker in, and Fantine Les in, uh, in Les Miserables. And Fantine in Les Miserables. And you have, there was an idea that TB was uh, somehow the wages of sexual sin, that uh, people who were led hectic lives got TB. On the other hand, you find all through the 19th and early 20th century the view that people got tuberculosis because they were both sensitive and very repressed, including repressed oh. sexually. And also you got the opposite, the little virginal untouched little Eva. Exactly. Yeah. The virgin child. Yeah. Uh, or the, yes, whether and male or female, yeah. uh, because the in, in Dickens boy, it's, a, yeah. it's often a little boy. Yeah. Uh, the pure soul uh, in the body of a child who is spared the degradation of adult life by being carried off uh, in this romantic way by tuberculosis. All of these responses to a very widespread yeah. and completely uncontrollable disease during the 19th century. There was no effective treatment for tuberculosis until the 1940s. In fact, the disease did decline after 1900 decline in frequency, but that was because of improved hygiene. It wasn't because uh, people knew how, to, knew how to treat it. The sending people away to sanatoria didn't do them any good that at all. That didn't do it. But then, since you mentioned uh, uh, sanatoria, you have uh, Munn's Magic Mountain guy, Hans Kastorp, and he was, it was a double theme. He, he didn't mind. Uh, they knew they had TB. There was open mm -hmm. discussion. At the same time, there was a sense of some shame there. No, it was rather uplifting, wasn't it? No, I think it was uplifting. Yeah, it, it was, was uplifting. Uh, glamorous. Yeah glamorous and decadent at the same yeah. time. Uh, but there was the, the, in, in the Magic Mountain is really an anthology of all the fantasies uh, that had collected around TB. The, the, the novel was published in 1924, but it had behind it a century and a half of yeah. fantasies about this disease, and every one of them is there. So the poet, S.O. Shelley, uh, and Ke talking about it, Keats, mm -hmm. and then there's for that matter, in our time, O'Neill's himself in Long Day's Journey, the young, the younger brother, Jamie's younger brother, O'Neill, right. Edmund, Edmund, who had TB, sure. but he was the poet. 
It was the poet's disease. It was the sensitive person's disease. It was also the debauched person's yeah. disease. It was the pure person's disease. It was uh, everything. And, and so that's why the these metaphors work. They never just uh, take a stand and, and uh, they, they, oh, they always admit of their yeah. opposite. Now, that ambiguity with TB, and no, but with cancer, never. Now we come to, why would that be? Well, I think... First of all, I, maybe we should yeah. get to this a little bit later. Right. I do think yeah. there's there are some some double attitudes even with cancer. But what it looks like to me when I start to think about it is that uh, the attitudes collected around TB actually split off uh, later in the century, and the the romantic positive ones went to insanity or mental illness. And the negative ones, the ones that picture the disease as demonic and shameful, those all collected around cancer. Because it does seem as if cancer largely is viewed at, in an anti-romantic way. Uh, nevertheless, as a kind of footnote to all of this, there's one form of cancer, cancer which has become romanticized, which is, as it were, the TB of cancer, and that's leukemia. Leukemia now functions as a romantic disease because, of course, people don't die of TB in the society anymore, so they have to have a romantic physical mm. illness. By the way, and, I'm that, and uh, that's become leukemia, and you, also since uh, since uh, young people can get it as well as older people. You know, since you mentioned that, so I must say I forget who it was. I somehow heard Ann Landers, Ann Landers, that can say something mm -hmm. about certain causes. She's active in many many causes. Yeah, very yeah. active in many causes, and and uh, and she's. One, there's some cause that are sexy, some are not. See, cancer, that's a sexy cause. Mm -hmm. That's sexy. Mm -hmm. And the word sexy is used now and then, involving drives uh, for certain cures or mm -hmm. certain causes. That's amazing. And so there's the word, sexy. Well, it's not impossible that cancer uh, could become romanticized. I mean, uh, it, I, I think that the, the main weight yeah. of... Of, uh, of talk of this mythic or fantasy yeah. discourse around the disease has been very negative, except, as I say, the yeah. leukemia thing, where yeah. you definitely yeah. see uh, uh, leukemia treated as a romantic death. Yeah. But who knows? Yeah. Could be before the disease is finally understood and uh, and and 100 percent mm. curable, as is the case now with TB. Uh, yeah. You may have yeah. many changes yeah. of. of, of you gonna, we'll come to that. The matter of what will happen when there is a cure, a certain kind of treatment, in contrast to the warlike treatment, uh, something more peaceful. Mm -hmm. comes like, but since a TB, it just occurred to me, the romantic aspect still hang on. The high fashion model, the Vogue model, you mm -hmm. know, the idea is chemical, you know, skinny. Because you quote Duchess of Windsor saying it's good to be thin, oh. thin and rich. That's also Mrs. Paley, the wife of the CBS yes. head, to be thin and rich. And it's also the, the high fashion model in Harper's Bazaar. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's that wonder, wonderful thing that the Duchess of Windsor said. Uh, one can never be too rich, one can never be too thin. Yeah. Said, That's really extraordinary. You could imagine some extremely rich person saying, you can never be too rich. Oh. But why would you say you could never be too thin? That really is not true. It's probably also not true oh. that you could never be too rich. But it's certainly true that you, you can be too thin. I mean, you can be very sick oh. when you're thin. It's extremely unhealthy to but be don't very you think thin, it has and to yet do with the that it comes out of that romantic uh, attitude uh, toward the body, which collected around uh, the idea of TB, and which hangs on in the, the no, in in women's fashion very generally. That the thinner you are, the better you are, and so people um, are obsessed 
in this society with being thin, a society which is over-rich and, and stuffs itself with too much food, and now a, a, a form of mental illness, a common form of mental illness among young women is anorexia. That is to say, uh, they get so obsessed with the fact that they're not thin enough that finally Don't they eat. can't eat. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It sure is. We're talking about uh, paradox, two contradictions here, aren't we? Back to... Uh, Oh, and so this all, there's a theory, and you, you, you speak of Reich and a guy named Gradek, mm -hmm. who came up with a theory that maybe you are responsible, the person is responsible and wills it. And the idea that the character types. Yeah. There's a TB character type and a cancer character type, and both the opposites, and that's so one is freer, hyper, mm -hmm. hyper-expressive, hyper-sexed, one under, also one repressed, that's right. cancer, and the other too full of turbulence, mm -hmm. that is expressing turbulence. Yeah, well, of course, one of the discoveries that I made when I was thinking about this material is I was aware of this Reichian uh, theory of the cancer personality type, and it's one very widely believed, uh, even by people who have never read Reich. There's a lot of people promoting this idea, and even the psychiatrists and psychotherapists making large fortunes right now treating cancer patients uh, on this basis. Uh, and I was under the impression, when I first thought about it, that it was Reich who first stated this theory. In fact, he just um, gave it a form in which it became very widely disseminated. The idea, and it's one of the, of the ideas that gave birth to the book, uh, the, the idea of a disease personality type seems to me to arise precisely with tuberculosis in the 19th century. And the notions about cancer are simply a continuation with another disease of the same idea, which didn't have the prestige of a science called uh, psychiatry behind it because they didn't use that kind of language. But in fact, you see all through the 19th century, people describing and understanding the occurrence of tuberculosis as a psychological phenomenon. This person had a certain personality or had led a certain life, usually unhappy or depressed, and therefore got sick. And the current vogue of these notions applied to cancer patients is really a continuation yeah. of these now entirely discredited ideas about TB. And whereas it's very clear to people that it's not true about TB, it's not at all clear to many people that it's yeah. not true about cancer. And it's funny, of course, what, what comes out of, the, of your work, uh, Susan Sontag is my guest, the book, Illness as Metaphor, is that little is learned, really, that a superstition, superstition and myth are as pervasive today when it comes to cancer as it was in the 19th century when it came to TB. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned Reich, and he points a classic case of cancer, Freud. Mm -hmm. Okay, as Freud was repressed, isn't that the idea? Yeah. And because of that, and as though it had nothing to do with the cigars the guy was right. smoking. Right. But even so, somebody would say, perhaps you know, a little bit more aware of the carcinogenic uh, uh, properties of smoking. Well, why did Freud, uh, you see, you could update even yeah. the Reichian why theory and say, why did he smoke those cigars? Yeah. Because he was so anxious or because he was so repressed or something. Other people never get, want to give up on these theories. But I think you're right, says that uh, anytime you think about the history of ideas, you are dealing with um, demagogy, you're dealing mm. with irrationality, you're dealing with superstition, the prevalence of magical thinking, of irrational thinking is absolutely staggering. And if if one thing is demystified, you have the feeling, well, some other yeah. fantasy or myth will take its place. But I don't think, I mean, some people have asked me this, I don't think that makes the task of demystification any less urgent or even pleasurable. 
Uh, there just have to be some people at every moment uh, engaged in that task of trying to uh, blow the whistle on yeah. fantasies and myths, even though one knows, of course, if you if you can get rid of these, they'll be replaced by others, but then there'll yeah. be other people, presumably, to try to attack them. Mother, you've said something I think that perhaps uh, can't be overemphasized. This book of Susan Sontag is not a book about disease and illness. It's a book about ideas. This is a book about ideas. What really right. is, isn't it? Well, it's a book about modern ways yeah. of feeling and yeah. thinking, and I, it is a well, just but the these, book, the book but these two illnesses become the metaphors, right? Well, th I think there are a lot of concerns uh, in in this book, which are the same as in the book on photography, uh, which I've got to read, and I apologize <laughs> for not having this far because you, 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 you're talking there too. I would, I'm taking up about myth and misconception. Well, about about the photography as an exemplary activity, photography, the taking of photographs and the consumption of photographs is telling us a lot about how we feel and how we interpret experience mm. and what we understand by experience. Mm. You said mm. the consumption of photographs. Sure. Come back to TV again, don't we? Right. <laughs> it's interesting how, word, how exactly. words, and we'll come to that during right. the, first, the second half of this program. The idea of, why, why, not, why not now? The idea of the implications now, linguistically, and as far and politically, and ideas, and as far as military activities are concerned, these words. Well, I was very struck by the fact that the language used to talk about cancer and to describe the the uh, treatment of cancer tends to have a military flavor. I mean, you, they speak of uh, cancer cells being invasive, uh, of of cancer of a cancer colonizing, and the cancer in one part of the body colonizing to another part of the body. Um, they'd speak of bombarding the body uh, with certain forms of treatment. There, there are uh, a Chemotherapy is chemical warfare using poisons. Right. As you point out in the book here. The cancer cells colonize. They colonize. Right. And the body has its defenses. Uh, and also the very... The very use of the word malignant and benign is quite extraordinary if you think of it. You know, if people have a tumor or a cyst or something, then they want to find out. And this is the standard medical terminology. If it is malignant or benign, malignant meaning cancer, or benign meaning not Here cancer. Here again, character type. Somewhere you point out that uh, some of the doctors, mm. or at least some of the myth is that a cheerful person mm -hmm. would, has, would be inclined toward having a benign Mm -hmm. uh, substance. Well, it's so heavily the moralized. Other? Yeah. And there's this extraordinary poem of Auden that I did. Oh, you got to that read that. Yeah, you? it's on page 48 um, right here. I've marked it's, it. It's amazing. The, uh, this is, it just absolutely reflects the, the view of cancer as a disease of the failure of expressiveness, uh, the, the, of the cancer person as a, as a repressed person. There is a, an Auden poem from the 1930s called Miss G, and I'll just read part of it. But the read early the whole the, thing, read the whole poem. Well, this is only actually an excerpt. Yeah. This poem I mean, is about three times oh. as long as this excerpt. But to begin it with, it is just a description of Miss G, who uh, is uh, described as a, as a caricatural spinster. And uh, in an earlier stanza, which I don't quote here, she passes the loving couples and turns her head away. That is, she refuses uh, the erotic life. And then, then this is the part where I quote in the book is where she goes to church, because, of course, then uh, the idea of a religious person being a repressed person, all those cliches. Miss G knelt down in the side aisle. She knelt down on her knees. Lead me not into temptation, but make me a good girl, please. 
The days and nights went by her like waves round a Cornish wreck. She bicycled down to the doctor with her clothes buttoned up to her neck. She bicycled down to the doctor and rang the surgery bell. Oh, doctor, I've a pain inside me and I don't feel very well. Dr. Thomas looked her over and then he looked some more, walked over to his wash basin, said, why didn't you come before? Dr. Thomas sat over his dinner, though his wife was waiting to ring, rolling his bread into pellets, said, cancer's a funny thing. Nobody knows what the cause is, though some pretend they do. It's like some hidden assassin waiting to strike at you. Childless women get it, and men when they retire, as if there had to be some outlet for their foiled creative fire. And so on and yeah. so on and so on. It's amazing. This is W.H. Auden writing in the 1930s. Auden was the son of a doctor and had a lifelong interest in medicine. And, and knew Grodick, uh, this German psychiatrist, when he, when, um, when he, Auden, was in Berlin in the early 30s, and was quite convinced of this idea that cancer was uh, a, a, is the, a is psychosomatic. Is yeah, like, like Reich conceived yeah. the idea that it had something to do with character. Right, and that it was a product of sexual repression. And here he has it in this uh, doggerel poem, which nevertheless he did write and uh, publish. It's not one of Warden's great poems. And it is a, a very, very uh, widespread view. And this idea that it's also that line, apart from this yeah. loony theory about cancer as a result of sexual repression, there's another line in the poem that struck me. It's like some hidden assassin waiting to strike at you. I mean, all this incredible hype around a yeah. disease. There is a, a group in Chicago, which I just found out about uh, that exists, a cancer counseling group that uh, somebody mm, came to talk to me yesterday when I arrived in Chicago about it. And it has the initials PAC, PAC, and, I, and gave, they gave me some literature about the group. And just last night, and in the hotel, I was looking at it, and I discovered what the initials stood for, People Against Cancer. I, th I find that quite extraordinary, yeah. as if it were, you know, People Against Poverty uh, or People uh, Against War, uh, war or something cancer. like that. Yeah, it's a war. Well, it's, again, the war yeah. thing. I yeah. mean, People Against Cancer, that's like saying, yeah. What? I mean, you can say people against tooth decay or people against diabetes or people against even, to take a, a fatal disease, multiple sclerosis or something. But there is, in, in all innocence, this notion of cancer as the this, uh, assassin, yeah. this murderer disease. People speak of cancer victims. I think it's an incredible language. Why cancer victims? Why not cancer patients? I mean, it's just a disease. Yeah. It's a bad disease, but, but it's just special. a disease. We it's not, to, not more than yeah. that. Mm. Let's come back to that. We'll take a pause now. Uh, Susan Sontag is my guest, and her book, it's a very uh, elegantly written, by the way, but the ideas just spring at you. Very exciting. Illness as metaphor. Uh, Farrar Strauss-Hiro, the publishers. And we'll resume in a moment after this message. So we're resuming the conversation with Susan Sontag. And Cancer, the assassin. So it's a battle, it's a war, but this more than, uh, there never was, in, I guess in the worst of the, in the deepest days of myth, mythology concerning TB. It never reached this particular stage of No, of, well you didn't have this warfare. kind of, you didn't have this bureau, bureaucratic uh, medical profession. You didn't have health 
in, in the way that it is now, as a, as a, regarded as an essential service of the of the uh, state. You didn't have the this tendency to medicalize all problems and all phenomena, which is a very important feature of 20th century life. Just recently, I think it was George McGovern who made some statement, or several uh, U.S. senators, about the United States losing the war against cancer mm -hmm. and criticizing uh, the programs that are funded by the federal government. Uh, and it, it's it's very curious. I mean, one one wants to laugh and say, well, I mean, the United States can't lose the war against cancer any more than they can lose China, well, as in the yeah, consecrated yeah, yeah, phrase of yeah, 30 years ago, uh, as somebody said, well, they never had China, yeah. so how could they lose it? But is there, would it not be, uh, wasn't it so to some extent in the early days of, t of TB before the cause was found? Mm -hmm. And as you point out in the book, there was one cause specifically. Yeah. Here it seems to be multiple, and whether something mysterious you know, the stranger is always the enemy. Yeah. The stranger is to be feared. This applies to political life, to race life, applies to everything. If the stranger is to be feared... I still think yeah. that the disease itself first has to be mythicized. You know that people, despite the facility and, and, and comfort with which we pronounce all the words connected with heart disease that we were talking about earlier, the, the ticker, the pump, and... Mm and talk about cardiac bypass operations and pacemakers and so on. In fact, doctors do not understand, the medical profession does not understand, basically, what causes cardiovascular disease. It is not understood on a deep level. It is still mysterious. Uh, there are, the causation is not understood, probably n not understood any better than what causes cancer. And yet again, the, I want to point out the difference that the kind of, taboo, the sense of the obscene and the frightening, mm. is not attached to heart disease, no. even though it's very often fatal, even though it's not really understood, even though effective treatment is only at a very early stage, as with cancer. So I think that our sense, uh, you know, that we can't explain it because it's mysterious. We can't explain it because we don't understand it. The disease already has to have something attached to it which is, um, by which it becomes something more than a disease, by which it becomes a moral and psychological condition. Then we can say, of course, we're frightened because we don't understand yeah. it. And as with all things we don't understand, we tend to attribute um, many causes, whereas probably nature is more economical and more elegant uh, than that. Yeah. It'll turn out that there yeah. is one central yeah. cause of cancer and not all these different yeah. causes that we imagine. But for now, it is evil. Mm -hmm. It is evil. The word cancer in our society. And so the Jews were a cancer, mm -hmm. as Hitler described them. Oh, the word TB was used there, too, and VD was used, right. too. Venereal disease, yeah. syphilis was used as a metaphor. Leprosy, of course, yeah. was used. Uh, the, the bubonic plague was used. In fact, it's very funny with, with bubonic plague, because there you see a, a disease that ravaged Europe for several centuries. In fact, killed in the 14th century about half the people in Europe, and enters into the word into the language on many levels, but is now so much an obsolete disease that doesn't exist anymore that the metaphor, so far as it still Plague exists as metaphors, becoming it's trivial, obsolete. But you know, the words, all the words that have pest in them are are words that pest relate pest. to bubonic plague. And if you say now somebody is a pest you mean a minor trivial annoyance, mm. but actually this is pest from pestilence, mm. which is the, one of the early English words for bubonic plague. Course, maybe one day cancer will uh, be used mm. in as trivial a sense as we as now it, say is, yeah, but Now we say pest. cancer is bone deeply evil. 
right. and to be eliminated. Right. If you the want cancer to cancer of our society. If you want to say something's really terrible, you call it a cancer. Yeah. That is probably the leading metaphor, the leading image that somebody would use to discre- to, 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 to express a sense of radical evil. And we come back to the plague, though. That was a community. That attacked a community. Mm-hmm. Whereas can't you point out here is the individual as against the society, that something he did or something right. coming back to, or something about his character. Something that strikes me so much is that most people who get cancer say, why me, mm. apparently? They say, what did I, in, in effect they're saying, what did I do? What did, they're either saying, it's unjust, you know, I didn't deserve it, or they're trying to figure out, because of these awful psychological theories about cancer, that what they did to, in fact, to deserve it or bring it on. But there is always this feeling that it is some kind of judgment, and it and it should be explained in some moral sense, which I think is nonsense to begin with, and very so that the aspect of sin enters. Sure. Now we come to sin, don't we? Right. But imagine saying, "Why me?" I mean, that you would say with the disease, "Why me? Why should I get this?" As if you know, that it, it it is always a punishment. I think people do subliminally view cancer as a punishment or a judgment, which is why it's so hard for people to say, I have cancer, I had cancer, as if they are admitting to something shameful. We come back again, don't we, to why specifically this particular illness, this particular disease that has this, in the past, plague, pestilence, was a community, and the scapegoats were sought. Mm -hmm. There was a scapegoat. You point out Jews are scapegoats in medieval Europe, as well as a scapegoat when a deep depression hit Germany mm-hmm. in post-World War One In Peru, by the way, I'm looking up some folk in Peru, uh, when a plague hit the town, they got a goat. Mm-hmm. And they put a black uh, sheet, a black cloth over the goat, and they hit it with sticks and stones and drove it out of town. But that's where the word yeah. scapegoat comes from. Yeah. As you know, in the, uh, the, the, the hypothesis is that that's what they did in ancient Greece, yeah. was they used goats. Poor goats, yeah. I guess, have been used yeah. for millennia as the sacrificial victim. What you're saying is, why cancer? Why should yeah. cancer be this this disease. I'm not sure I can answer that beyond the fact that there seems to be a disease in every cultural moment, every generation where that, that these qualities get attached to and beyond the fact that the metaphors that grew up around cancer seem to express anxieties that that's, that uh, strike very deeply and that seem very representative of what people feel. For instance, the, the metaphor of growth, of uncontrolled growth, that is something that people are worried about and that they experience, whether it's um, growth in, 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 in the most obvious sense of growth of population or the, the growth that destroys the environment or the or very negative forms of productivity which use up resources. Uh, so a disease which is described in terms of, of uncontrollable negative growth hooks into, latches onto anxieties that everybody is feeling and that they don't have a name mm-hmm. for, and then they collect around mm-hmm. the disease. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't believe what you wrote here. It went about, this, about something about the Freedom Information Act of 1966. Isn't that amazing? Uh, perhaps you tell about that. Well, you you <laughs> read it. All right. That's, that's one of your specialties. I was I was astonished. By the way, I found that, that absolutely by accident. Yeah, this is uh, early in the yeah. book. Uh, Susan Sontag's book speaks of uh, rights of privacy and secrets, illness about keeping cancer a secret. Since getting cancer can be a scandal that jeopardizes one's love life 
one's chance of promotion, even one's job. Patients who know what they have, what they have tend to be extremely prudish, if not outright secretive, about their disease. And here's the part. A federal law, the 1966 Freedom of Information Act cites, quote, treatment of cancer, treatment for cancer in a clause exempting from disclosure matters whose disclosure, quote, would be an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. It is the only disease mentioned. Right. There are actually seven things that you're... Uh, that are exempted from disclosure in the in the Freedom of Information Act, and uh, and and this is one of them. <laughs> See what I have there? This is one of them. It's abs absolutely amazing. Not VD. Not VD. Yeah. This is very funny. Well, presumably, no. It says, tr you know, medical. No, it just says treatment. Yeah. Of, it, it doesn't say medical mm -hmm. matters. For mm -hmm. example, treatment for cancer. It just says treatment for cancer. It also, another one, it's some odd things in it. it an, an, um, there's also one about industrial secrets, and mm. there's also one about being involved in, a, in divorce litigation, I think, is another one. But there are only seven, right. and, it's, and this is the yeah. only one that concerns a disease or mentions a disease. I was very, very there struck again. by that. Why this yeah, should be uh, um, a matter of, of shame. And there are people who, a lot of people I've heard... Uh, from who say that they lose their jobs or they're passed over uh, for promotion or they're not hired when their employers find out that they have cancer. So, I mean, it's quite r realistic that some people conceal it. Uh, but it wouldn't be if, if, say, the guy has uh, heart trouble of some sort. Possibly, possibly not. Possibly but, not, yeah. yeah. I, don't think in the, I don't think in the same way. I don't think in the same way at all. And there is, as I say, almost a feeling of contagion, that the disease is uh, morally But contagious. ironically, mm. ironically, TB was contagious. Sure. Cancer is not contagious. As far as anybody knows. So here knows, again yeah. we have right. <coughs> a reverse of, of danger, you know, sure. where danger isn't where it's not. Exactly. Exactly. But cancer patients, uh, well, again, it's a vicious circle, of course, yeah. because there's so much concealment. Then when the thing comes out, it is indeed very shocking to people. Uh, and people have extraordinary yeah. reactions above and beyond what you might learn if you uh, just found out you yeah. had a serious disease. And, and, but every now and then a breakthrough. Oh, by the way, you point leukemia, uh, may be a romantic. You point the romantic element of our day is probably insanity. Mm -hmm. That's replacing TB as the romantic one. Someone is off. Well, there's something special about him. R.D. Lang would say that. Yeah, but also the idea that that many the people who crack up are perhaps particularly sensitive unable to bear the normal stresses and miseries of everyday life. Uh, uh, the connection between the, of the, the sensitive artist, people crack up. The sensitive the people. The sensitive people get TB. Exactly. The poets get TB. And the poets crack up. The, poets the, the, crack no, the, the notion that the sensitive person who's likely to be an artist or have so the temperament of So the guy who's really artist. aristocratic way up there would, would, would be someone who has TB and cracks up. <laughs> and, well, people don't get TB anymore uh, in rich countries. No. Uh, so now they pretty much just have the choice of insanity. But we still come back, so cancer is the scapegoat of illnesses, in a way. Yeah, I guess you could, I, it, it's become a metaphor for what is dreaded, what is uncontrollable, uh, for the whole negative aspect of, of illness. And cu curiously enough, curiously enough, uh, most people do not believe that there is effective treatment for cancer. That is to say, the equation cancer equals death 
has been so widely believed that most people who get cancer are convinced that that means they're going to die, and, that, and there's just no question about it. And they're actually afraid or reluctant to investigate the possibilities of treatment because their understanding is it's hopeless anyway and that the treatment is so terrible it's just a question of prolonging their agony or making them suffer more. Of course, this leads to naturally a, a subject that's been in headlines for a long time, the quack aspects of it. And of course, Laetrile, of course, is mm -hmm. the most dramatic case in point. And with its political implications, too, it's ironic, isn't it? Right, because Laetrile has been very much taken up by the John Birch Society. Um, and they distribute a lot of material uh, about Laetrile. So if there is... But there's really good treatment available yeah. in cancer centers. It's not, unfortunately, to my again, to my great surprise uh, and, and shock, uh, it's not available or used much in many ordinary hospitals. In other words, somebody who has cancer is well advised to get to a cancer center or a cancer hospital and not even to settle for the cancer department in a general hospital because it's usually only these big cancer centers so far, I'm sure this will improve in the next few years, but so far it's only the big cancer centers that have this advanced treatment. But this is nothing to do with this quack stuff um, or any kind of paramedical treatment. It's some question of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. But it's only given, or for the most part, only given through the cancer centers like uh, the one in Bethesda, Maryland, or in New York, or By the way, Mayo you point, you point something out here. As these advances are mm. taking place, we come, metaphors may end as far as cancer, the warlike metaphors, because you say the treatment, in many cases, a warlike treatment, sure. radiation. You attack, you counterattack the invasion. Here's the time has come for more and more immunology, you're saying, more pacific treatment. Yeah. And thus, if that happens, you imply toward the end of the book, well, this will go as a metaphor. Here's a problem to remain. Oh, sure. If it, it is not inconceivable that cancer, let's say, let's hypothesize, the evidence isn't, isn't in yet, but it is, this is certainly a possibility. Uh, it is not inconceivable that cancer will turn out to be caused by a virus or a series of viruses aided and abetted by certain environmental factors, but nevertheless that there is a virus that's a central uh, factor, causative factor. It, it is not inconceivable that there will then be some very simple treatment, perhaps of the order of a vaccination or right. immunization against cancer. All of this language will collapse. Do you know Dr. Albert St. Georgie? Well, I know of, I, of his work, no, of course. Well, he's working sure. on something. He's been... Well, I, I, can't defend him. I don't know sure. enough about it, but I know him, mm -hmm. and he, he can't get a grant. He won after he did win the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize yeah. for vitamin C. Mm -hmm. He has the credentials. He has a whole new theory about cancer, and of course, he's ignored by mm -hmm. the uh, cancer people. Absolutely, he can't get a grant of any. So he's up in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, uh -huh. and he has a whole different theory. So you would think with his yeah. credentials, sure, you know. But anyway, when yeah. the, when all the information is in, and and it and. Uh, there's no reason to imagine that this disease will always be understood as this incredibly complicated thing, that the, the, the causal analysis will become simpler and simpler. Then a lot of these metaphors will drop away. But it, I think the causation isn't enough. You see, that they really do have to know how to treat it and treat it in a simple way, the way tuberculosis can be treated. Yeah. Coming into something else, redemption. Uh, you point out in, in the TB, uh, in the death of the TB uh, virgin or hero or heroine who, who has led a, a, a sort of a life of sin, uh, redemption takes place, whether it's Fantine or whether it's Violetta, or whether mm -hmm. it's, redemption takes place, a beatific appearance. 
Now, in the marvelous Japanese filmmaker Kurosawa did a Kiru, mm -hmm. which dealt with a guy, a middle management bureaucrat in Tokyo or some large Japanese town, Tokyo, right. who was overwhelmed by paperwork and finds he has cancer of the stomach, and he redeems himself. He quits and, his job yeah. and finally does something to redeem his life. Yeah. And in it, there's a song. And we hear that song, because that mm -hmm. song, to me, evokes that whole uh, moment that's in this remarkable and very moving film. Uh, he, he, he finally has a playground created. He defies protocol. And he has a playground created for the children of poor people. And he defies the mafia, the mm -hmm. syndicate there. And they're paying him tribute at this wake, and they're recreating stories of him. And he's singing a song. The last time this cop saw him, he was on the swing of this playground that he created, and he's singing the song, the same one he sang in a geisha house earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's a song about lost life and lost youth. And we hear it. I love it. Beautiful. I mean, particularly if you've seen the film, it brings back a memory. Well, it's a real voice. Hmm? It's a real yeah. voice. That's what some of them. Some. It's the way people really do sing when they're filled with emotion. And I, I'm thinking, at the same time, he kept it secret mm -hmm. from his son and daughter-in-law. If I remember correctly. Sure. Well, th I think that the Kurosawa must have been thinking of this. Uh, great story by Tolstoy called the, the Death of Ivan Ilyich, which is about a middle management bureaucrat, uh, a high, in fact, a high civil servant in, in Russia and who, uh, who discovers who, who has cancer. And then during the period of his dying, when the disease is completely unmentionable uh, to his wife and child, the same situation, uh, realizes that he's wasted his life and that he led this completely conventional life and never was in a really authentic contact with himself or with other people, uh, never really experienced joy, always controlled things, so he never experienced real sadness either, just never, never, never had from life what it could be, and only realizes this too late when, when he is actually dying and has some kind of contact with a male nurse who takes care of him at a certain moment of just a creatural kind of looking looking at his face, really looking at a human face. I mean, it's a very, still a very limited thing. And dies in misery and agony knowing that he has wasted his life. And so the, the situation in the Kurosawa oh. film is somebody, also it's stomach cancer again, um, and unmentionable as in as in the Tolstoy story, but he does quit his job. Instead of just going to bed, as in Tolstoy's story, he actually quits his job, has one more year, takes up the cause of this poor neighborhood, and fights oh. for a playground for them, and, yeah. uh, 
and uh, but it's the same theme. You say the unmentionable, mm. even though TB was once uh, unmentionable for a long time, then it became, as you say, the romantic disease. And they, you point somewhere, it dealt with the upper part, generally right. speaking, breath, breathing. Breathing. Even though cancer of the lung, we think of also cancer of the lower extremity, that's the right. embarrassing aspect. The embarrassing thing of cancer of the stomach or cancer of the colon or whatever. I mean, in fact, in fact, both diseases, tuberculosis and cancer, can can uh, you know inhabit yeah, yeah. Yeah. very different organs. I mean, most people do not know that tuberculosis. You can have tuberculosis of the kidneys, or you can have tuberculosis of the or hip. The bone the bone or tuberculosis yeah. of the brain. They think of it only but the as a association. Lung. The association is always with pulmonary tuberculosis. Many people think that that's the only kind of tuberculosis there is. And um, and so it's a noble disease, a disease of breath. And the same phenomena, you, let's say you have in cancer and TB, the, exactly the same phenomenon, which in the advanced stage of the disease, you get very thin. This is viewed positively with TB and negatively with That's cancer. right. Because thin, rich and thin, says Babs Paley or Duchess <laughs> of Windsor or the high vogue fashion model. Right. Yeah. But see, but we've got to come back again to those implications as the word and the use of it too in totalitarian societies, both of right and of left, the cancer is that enemy, the dissenter. Right. Well, the, there, there's a very alarming use of the cancer metaphor in political rhetoric because what when you say uh, something is a cancer, what you seem to be saying is this must be treated by radical surgery. We must be pitiless. We yeah, must, so the uh, Red Brigade speak of we got to fight the cancer of those guys too. Right. So Everybody uses it. Uh, uh, Trotsky called Stalinism the cancer of mm. Marxism. Uh, Hitler said that the Jews were the cancer of Europe uh, uh, in, a, in a trivial and... Uh, a very famous uh, recent use of the word, uh, John Dean said that the, to Nixon, there's a cancer on the presidency. That is, he, he had the nerve to refer to the, the possibility that the Watergate matter would become public as a cancer. That was from the inside when he was still Nixon's I'm slave. I'm another aspect, too. You think of malignant and benign. Of course, we think of uh, the United States senator of your state, and you can have him, too, mm -hmm. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who spoke <laughs> of benign neglect. Right. Benign neglect. Right. There's a tremendous amount of moralism in these words, and I think when when political situations are compared to diseases, that is a, a, an act of grotesque simplification. Even beyond the question of the cancer metaphor, I think we ought to blow the whistle on the comparing of political situations to illness situations. I think it. it here I'm speaking in the name of politics, not in the name of, 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 of suffering patients. I just think that that's a, such a simplification. I don't think that political situations are like medical situations. I think we ought to resist the encroaching uh, medicalization of our thinking, that we tend more and more to think of things in, in medicalized language. Well, because it works in the reverse, too. Uh, just as we medicalize political situations and warlike situations, so we are using warlike approaches toward the medical situation. Right, right. The, the, the enemy is the disease. I don't think diseases are enemies. Uh, again, to come back to this idea of the patient as victim and the disease as the enemy. I think this is a lot of hype and uh, does not help people to think about their situation or to act in, a, in an effective, huh. practical way. The book is uh, Illness is Metaphor. And as you can gather, it's a very exciting and stimulating one. You can, read, you can read it out loud, by the way. It's, it's, uh, 
And I think perhaps you should read out loud the last passage of the book, too, that in a way uh, tells us what it is about and how to think about it, how to approach it, really. Because at the end, that's, you're, you're, that's what you're really telling us, aren't you? Uh, there, there are problems that be solved in one way without, without using medical terms to do it, you know? Yeah. You, yeah. You just choose your spot. Okay. Cancer remains the most radical of disease metaphors. I talked earlier about other ones that have, that have been used in a moralistic way. Uh, but cancer remains the most radical of disease metaphors. And just because it is so radical, it is particularly tendentious. A good metaphor for paranoids, for those who need to turn campaigns into crusades, for the fatalistic, cancer equals death, and for those under the spell of ahistorical revolutionary optimism, the idea that only the most radical changes are desirable. As long as so much militaristic hyperbole attaches to the description and treatment of cancer, it is a particularly unapt metaphor for the peace-loving. And then I talk a little bit about how th I think the language about cancer will evolve in the coming years and will change when the disease is finally understood and the rate of cure becomes much higher. And it is already, to a certain extent, evolving as chemotherapy is more and more supplanting radiation and as the newest form of treatment, immunotherapy, gains wider and wider use. Uh, as the language of treatment evolves from military metaphors of aggressive warfare to metaphors featuring the body's natural defenses, what is called the immunodefense system can also, to break entirely with the military metaphor, be called the body's immune competence. As these changes in treatment occur, cancer will be partly demythicized, and it may then be possible to compare something to a cancer without implying either a fatalistic diagnosis or a rousing call to fight by any means whatever a lethal, insidious enemy. Then perhaps it will be morally permissible, as it is not now, to use cancer as a metaphor. But at that time, perhaps nobody will want any longer to compare anything awful to cancer, since the interest of the metaphor is precisely that it refers to a disease so overlaid with mystification, so charged with the fantasy of inescapable fatality. Since our views about cancer and the metaphors we have imposed on it are so much a vehicle for the large insufficiencies of this culture, for our shallow attitude toward death, for our anxieties about feeling, for our reckless, improvident responses to our real problems of growth, for our inability to construct an advanced industrial society which properly regulates consumption, and for our justified fears of the increasingly violent course of history. The cancer metaphor will be made obsolete, I would predict, long before the problems it has re reflected so persuasively will be resolved. And that's the book, Illnesses Metaphor, Susan Sontag. Publishers, Parhar Strauss, Giraud, and it's available. Very exciting, too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stan.